The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by HubSpot. Imagine growing a business with high-quality leads, fast-closing deals, and wildly happy customers. It's not a miracle. It's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today. Hi, I'm Daniel Roth, LinkedIn's Editor-in-Chief. Welcome back to This Is Working. On every episode of This Is Working, we talk live on LinkedIn with leaders and prominent voices, people who are helping us navigate this incredibly turbulent and what I think will be transformative 2020. In this episode, we hear from a special guest, Mary Barra, the CEO of GM. Mary has something that few of us have today, longevity. She has been at GM her entire career, and by that I mean right out of high school. She started at a university sponsored by GM. She rose through the ranks. She went through supply chain management, purchasing, HR, engineering, plant manager. She was the executive VP of global product development and the head of HR. And since 2014, she has been the CEO. She was the first female CEO of any major car company. During Mary's tenure as CEO, she's faced all sorts of challenges, recalls, government investigations, and now COVID-19, and of course, the movement and protests sparked by the murder of George Floyd and other black Americans. She's a proactive and, as she likes to describe it, action-oriented leader, and you'll hear more about that in our conversation. We connected with Mary at her home in Southeast Michigan, where she was sitting surrounded by books in a dark, beautiful library. Here's our conversation. What kind of what, what room are you in? It's actually my husband's library, so I've kind of taken over his study uh, as I've been working from home. So uh, uh, I have to give him all the credit for the books. You're leading a global company in 2020. Leading a global company is difficult enough in a year where we have a pandemic, where we have questions about racial justice and and how people are treated in general. That brings a whole new set of issues. I would love to ask you, as you are managing a company that operates on six continents with 180,000 workers, can you just talk a little bit about what it was like when you first realized that this year was, that something was going different, that this pandemic was descending? And how did you talk to your senior leaders? How did you start getting a focus around exactly what GM is going to do, what kind of austerity measures you were going to put into place? Can you just take us into those early days when you realized things were changing? Well, you know, it was something we um, saw very early on because of our strong operations in China. So as we saw the impact in China, not only on our China operations, on our entire team there, uh, and also the supply base, it was immediately something that we had to focus on uh, because the auto industry has a global supply chain. And so looking and, and managing through that was, was the very, very early days and obviously making sure we were doing the right thing for our team members uh, in China. Quickly followed to Korea, needed to do the same thing. And then as we saw it really spreading globally, we knew this was something that we had to manage for, for every single one of our operations. As it became significant in the United States, uh, you know, we worked and listened, worked with our partners, worked with our unions, and realized the right thing to do was to suspend our operations and have people who could work from home work from home. And we immediately um, started working on, on all elements of cost. We knew that we needed to, not knowing what was going to happen, how long the impact of, of the uh, COVID-19 would be on our operations, we went into really taking severe austerity measures uh, to make sure that we would be well positioned uh, also, you know, very um, fortunate that the company for the last decade, we have done so much work on restructuring and strengthening the company and our balance sheet 
that put us in a better position. But we still knew we had to take steps uh, to make sure we had the right liquidity and whatever self-help we could do. So that was work that started. At the same time, uh, we started taking the lessons learned from China, from Korea to understand how they had, had had a safe restart and what would work we would need to do to make sure we could do that, not only in North America, but also in South America. And that work continues today as we're a few weeks into having most of our operations running in all of North America and are, are beginning to uh, see operations uh, also resume in South America. So it was really a focus on our people and then on the company, the liquidity, and even today, we don't know what the true uh, impact will be. We're hoping for the best. It seems like there's, uh, at least in the United States, we're seeing a recovery in demand for uh, vehicles. We've seen that in China as well. But I think it's still early days. So we're also doing tremendous scenario planning to hope that we have the best outcome, but be prepared with a more conservative outlook in case uh, everything doesn't go as well as, as we hope it does. So are you still expecting to see all plants operating in normal capacity by the end of this month? Yes. Uh, you know, that's working day to day with our entire supply base, our global supply chain. But, uh, you know, we have line of sight. We have most of our operations in North America running, like I said, some in South America. But in North America, we believe um, if things remain on track, that we'll be in a position to have most, if not all, operations running back to what capacity we were running prior um, to the impact of COVID, although we also will very much monitor demand. Even while you were trying to figure out how to, which plants to close down, how to get people to work from home safely, you also spun up efforts to start producing ventilators and face masks in your, in your, uh, in your plants. How was that decision made? Who did you bring into that? And, and is that, is it a process of just saying, look, we're manufacturers, we can manufacture anything, this is something that we can do. What's it like inside when you decide to go from making cars to making ventilators? Well, from a from a ventilator perspective, I, I got a call from Ken Chenault, who introduced us to Ventec. And the very first meeting was we, we sent a team um, to their headquarters in Washington State to to learn. And as the, the team got there, they they said, you know, we think we can do this, but we have to take an operation that's building about two to three hundred ventilators a month, and we want to get that up to ten thousand. We are so thankful to our supply base because many about half of the components in the ventilator came from an all-new supply base and leveraging the automotive supply base and the scale that they know how to do. Uh, but the speed was incredible from when that first visit occurred to being in Kokomo, Indiana at the plant and the first ventilator ro uh, rolling off the line um, literally was a month. And that was a work of almost every function in General Motors from quality to production to manufacturing to legal to finance. Everyone had a role to play and we leveraged all of our processes that we do when we launch a, a new vehicle. So working in, in partnership with Ventec, uh, we were able to do that quite quickly, but there's so many people that played a very important role, including um, hundreds of suppliers. The, the scope of how that works for a company that is like, we know how to make cars, we can make incredible vehicles, you can make things that are related to vehicles. You went to make, you talk about transferable skills. This is a entirely different kind of skill of making medical equipment. Did you have certain people who had medical experience or is making one, if you're making cars, you should be able to make ventilators. What was it like to become, to feel like you had the, the capabilities to be able to pull this off? Did you have one or two people who were in charge of it? Were there hundreds of people? What, what, what's it like behind the scenes as you were trying to go into an entirely different industry? 
Well, we had um, we had one person in charge. It was Phil Kinley, who was our head of North America manufacturing, and then he knew he had um, you know the ability to pull on anyone in the company. And I'm so proud of the GM team because when someone got the call, they jumped right in. Also, our head of purchasing, Chilpan Amin, uh, immediately um, from when they were there, they shipped a box of parts. They sent the the drawings, and and over a weekend. They did an open call to all of our supply base to say, these are the parts we need someone to figure out how to make. And so it was really tremendous. But, you know, I think as they went and saw the process, they knew when you look at, you know, not only does General Motors assemble vehicles and we do stampings, we do powertrains, we do transmissions. One of the really cool stories was there was a part in the ventilator where we act very similar to components in a transmission. And our transmission engineers worked on helping improve a quality issue. And actually, if you talk to Chris Kipke today, who's the CEO of Ventech, would say, you know, help make their ventilator better. So there were quite a bit of transferable skills. And, you know, one thing that the automotive industry knows how to do is make things at scale. From a mass perspective, one of the reasons we were confident we could produce mass is our, our team in China had done that. And so they shared their drawings, their processes. But it was really important when we started making masks that we didn't tap into the existing supply base because we knew those who make masks today could probably make them more quickly. Once again, we turned to our automotive suppliers and and some of our seating companies were able to use the material that we use in seats to formulate the right material that we needed to have surgical grade masks being produced. And so we created a new supply base for masks as well. So I, I can take very little credit other than empowering the team, but there were hundreds of people who worked literally 16, 17 hour days to to do the mass production and the ventilator production as quickly as they could. Well, it's an incredible story. And there are questions coming in from the stream about whether uh, this is something that you'll continue to do even after the pandemic. Do you continue to make medical equipment? Do you help these other industries? Is, or is this a one-time you know, giving back uh, 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 experiment that, or, or change that you put into place that, that that won't actually have an impact on GM in the future? Well, you know, I think if you look at General Motors history, we were supportive of the government and the country in World War One and World War Two. So, you know, as, as the crisis started to unfold, we just said, hey, whatever we can do, we're going to do it. At first, all of our the mass production went to hospitals and first responders. We're now uh, using those in our in our operations. And one of our employees had a great idea of maybe we should even post COVID after there's a vaccine and we hopefully that soon, maybe we should be using masks during the regular flu season to keep people healthy. So, you know, we'll make them make masks as long as we think, um, you know, we, we need to to supply them. And then ventilators, you know, there's conversations going on with Ventech of what the right long-term strategy is, uh, you know, once we complete our 30,000 unit commitment that we have, and then look at what's the right arrangement for Ventec going forward. As someone who has spent your entire career in manufacturing, does this change how you think about what is possible or what you do or how you manage? You know, one of the, the things that I'm, I'm most proud of, and, and I've realized how quickly we can do things, uh, and, and one of the key things was empowerment. Uh, the people working, uh, you know, they knew what they had to get done. We, you know, we had experts from every area, as I mentioned, and they knew they were empowered to do what needed to be done to call whoever there was no, can I, can I call someone? It's just, no, they made the call. When I went down to Kokomo to visit the team, um, I didn't even realize how many resources from General Motors were working on the project, but it was just uh, amazing to see. And so one of the things that I'm personally taking away is empower people and let them go. Uh, you know, we were able to reduce a lot of the bureaucracy and 
you know, now people in the company talk about it. We want to do it ventilator fast. And uh, I, again, I, I love the fact that people felt empowered and are transferring that lesson to other parts of our business, because if we empower people, you know, occasionally we might have an issue, but 99% of the time, it's probably going to work out great. So that's been a huge learning for me. And uh, the team, the team showed us what they could do. I remember the first time that we talked, one of the things that you were trying to do at GM was to get people to move the GM culture from being one where people sit and they, everyone nods in the meeting and then they leave the meeting and they complain or they say, I'm actually not going to do what I just nodded about. And you said, I want people to talk up in meetings and I'm demanding accountability. So this sounds like taking it to a, to a whole nother level. You've set some pretty audacious goals for GM. So let me just read three of these here. You said, it says GM envisions a world with zero crashes, zero emissions, zero congestion. And then this week you said that uh, you want GM to be the most inclusive company in the world. This was in reaction to the George uh, Floyd killing and and uh, and the killing of other Black Americans at the hands of police, and looking a look at systemic injustices uh, in corporate America. What made you decide that being the most inclusive company was something that you wanted to set as a goal? And what does it mean? How how did you even go about doing that? Our goal is to create an environment where everybody brings their true self to work, because then they can be at their best and do their best. And you know, I think that's something we've been striving for. Uh, you know, to, to be uh, an incredibly inclusive company creates that environment. But I also want to say, I don't want to be the only company. I would like every company to have that goal because think of the change we can drive in the environment. We can create the creativity, the innovation, uh, the collaboration, if we can all be truly inclusive workplaces. And so I'm setting that goal for ourselves, but it's not, it's something I, you know, I want to, I'll learn from others. We'll learn from other companies. We'll work with others. Uh, but I, I think it's what we all have to be working to achieve. And how are you going to measure? What are you looking for to make sure that you actually are hitting that goal? One of the things we've created also is an inclusion advisory board. And the very first step um, as we're forming that, though, is we need to listen. And we need to understand. Uh, we can't assume we understand. We need to make sure. We want to move quickly and we want to act. But we want to make sure that we're acting in a way that is really going to address the problem and, and drive systemic change. So we'll listen. And through that, once we set our goals, we'll measure ourselves and hold ourselves accountable to those goals, no different than we are holding ourselves accountable to, to launch uh, electric vehicles uh, in, a, in a timely fashion across all segments. So I think it's really treating it as something that we hold ourselves accountable to, to do, no different than any of the other business goals. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise. A promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. A promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by HubSpot. More to-dos, less time, and so many tools to keep track of. Doing business can be hard, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You just need HubSpot. Their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this. Higher quality leads, fast closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark breaking quarters. It's not a miracle. It's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today.
there's a question from Noah in the stream who says, are there any policy changes that you'll be putting in place? Is there anything that you can share that you are going to be doing immediately to change how GM operates? There's already been many things that we've been doing to to, to drive inclusion, but I would say I think it's somewhat interrelated of, of this empowerment and learning how people work together and giving everybody you know more freedom. That's definitely something I've already been talking to the, the company, the leadership team, and all employees about, you know, how do we keep this mindset going, uh, which I think, you know, that coupled with what we want to accomplish from an inclusion perspective, it's, it's really involving everyone. So I don't know if that's a policy per se. We will definitely review all of our policies to see if there's changes that need to be made. But I think more important sometimes than policy is, is how the, the, the culture is and how the company behaves. And that's what we're focusing on. Well, we're getting a lot of comments coming in here from employees. Kevin says, she makes me feel proud to work for GM. Adam Leon, proud to be a GM employee, proud of our leader, Mary Barra. Uh, and uh, Letitia Gilbert from Detroit says, hello, Mary, thanks for being a great leader. And then finally, Matt says, I know it's her husband's study, but gotta love the model cars on the bookshelves, so Detroit. So that's great. Um, let's move on to cars for one second. One of the things you have committed to continuing to fund, even as GM deals with the headwinds brought on by the pandemic is your electric vehicle work. Can you talk about why you've decided to keep that fully funded? And and then also, I noticed in the uh, quarterly earnings, you said we're making progress even while people are working from home. So I'd love to understand how you work from home and build EVs and what kind of targets you want to hit and, and how, how those targets are looking. We believe in an all-electric future. So as we entered the pandemic, and as I mentioned, we you know looked at every single cost line item in the company. We early on though made a commitment as a leadership team that we didn't want to do anything that would stop our transformation and the development of electric vehicles. Uh, we have the Chevrolet Bolt EV um, in the marketplace now, but we have many exciting uh, new electric vehicles coming on our Ultium battery platform starting next year with the, the GMC Hummer EV. And we think those are so important for the transformation of, of the industry and how people move uh, that we, we didn't want to slow that down. In fact, you know, we're looking for opportunities always to continue to accelerate that. And one of the things it, with our vehicle development process is, you know, engineers and, and cross-functional teams found ways to get the work done in the development of these vehicles, even when they were working from home. And so, uh, you know, we were able to do virtual builds with everybody uh, using WebEx or, you know, different uh, collaboration tools. And it, it was just, again, the, the dedication and the commitment of GM employees of knowing what they want to get done and, and what they are passionate about. So um, I, it did surprise me, though, at how much we could still keep moving forward when everyone was working from home. That's something that was a lesson learned and will continue to build on. If you take what you've learned about how to work from home and you use that as the new normal for GM, is it possible to be in a world where you continue to plan vehicles collaboratively and virtually, or is your goal to get everyone back to the office? I think we've learned a lot about what work can be done from home, giving people uh, that flexibility. There are some positions in our company, though, where people need to be there uh, 100% of the time. And so we have to look at each of the different types of work we have to do and figure out what's most appropriate. And we'll also survey our employees to get their input on what they think. I believe that there's times where we do need to be face-to-face -face and, and make sure we're driving innovation that comes from collaboration. So it will be a blend, uh, and you know we're, we're working through that right now, but we'll be also um, asking our employees what they think and, and, and getting to uh, a new definition of how we do work. Do you, though, foresee a day where you have engineers 
who are working on the same project spread all over the world where Detroit becomes a place, some place where some of these, some engineers are working, but you have people all over coming together over, over WebEx, as you said? We, we do that today. When you yeah. look at people working on electrification, when you look at people working on connectivity, we have people in Warren, Michigan. We have people in Markham, Canada, Ontario in Canada. We have people in Israel. We have people in uh, San Francisco. So we already do do a tremendous amount of work virtually also with our teams in China, our teams in Korea, South America. So that's something we know how to do. Um, and as we've done that, though, we also realize um, there, there is times where things move faster and get done when everybody is in the same time zone. And uh, even when they're in the same design studio or at the proving ground talking about the vehicle. So that's why it will be a blend. Isha Shah writes in with a question that I'm sure you get all the time, which is, can you give some words of advice to young women? You are a role model to so many uh, people, especially young women who are saying, Mary's in a job that no one's ever held before, that no woman has ever held before. How do I get to her level? What, what kind of advice do you give? Well, the advice uh, I was raised with, with my, my mother and father, um, and they just said hard work, you know, there's no substitute for hard work. So that's one, one element. But specifically for women, I would say, take some chances. Uh, you know, there's uh, research that's been done, and this is not just GM, but it's across industry. But if there is a job requirement that says, here's 10 things you need to have, a woman will look at it and say, oh, well, I've only got nine out of 10, I can't apply where a man will look at it and have five, six, you know, and say, I'm going to go for it. And my message is go for it. Make sure you're not holding yourself back and also actively seek input. Talk to people. You know, I have found in my career, virtually everyone will want to tell you about what they do. I mean, they're passionate about it. It's their, you know, it's their career. It's their job. So learning from others, asking for advice, um, I think is very important. But, you know, it, it's hard work distinguishes people um, it is, is really what I believe. But for women specifically, don't, don't uh, take yourself out of the running before you're even in it. And is there anything that you do to make sure that uh, women in the org realize that that is something they need to be putting themselves up for, that they need to be applying for positions that they might not have otherwise? Is there anything that, that, that is the role of the corporation to help people step into those spots versus, versus telling them you got to do it on your own? I, I think it's a very important role of leaders in the company, people leaders in the company, and also our, our HRM, our human resource committees to uh, one of the things I require at the most senior level, all of the uh, most senior positions are, are, are presented to the uh, my, my direct team for final approval. And one of the requirements I have is show me the diverse slate that you looked at. And if you don't have a diverse slate, what are you going to do in the next one to three years to make sure you do in the future? And I think it's driving that through the whole company. But then also, it's so important, those one-on-one -on -one conversations between an employee and their people leader to, to have those conversations and get the feedback so you can uh, understand what you're interested in from a leader perspective and then help that person achieve it. Uh, Mary, I want, want to finish this off with a question that we're seeing a lot on LinkedIn, um, and especially in a lot, we've seen a lot of uh, CEOs and senior leaders weighing in on what kind of action they want to take around the George Floyd killings and, and what they have seen and what they intend to do. And a lot of the comments are people saying, this is great. I've heard similar things after Ferguson. I've heard similar things after Parkside. We've heard people coming out and saying, we demand change. We're going to change. This is how things are going to change. Um, Simone asks, and a couple other people have asked, is how do you how do you make sure that you that there is a focus on this, even when the spotlight 
moves on and it will inevitably, or it has in the past at least, moved on. So what do you do, how, how do you take this massive organization and say, look, what I wrote and what I said with these leaders of Detroit and where I, I said our, our, our goals are, that we are going to continue pressing on that when people start thinking about other things? Well, I think it is the responsibility of leadership to not let the agenda be replaced. Uh, and that's why at General Motors, we're going to set near-term, medium, and long-term goals and make sure it stays on our agenda. You know, when we had the, the safety crisis with the ignition switch back in 2014, one of the things we told everybody is we never want to forget this. And every year we, uh, well, we reinforce safety on a monthly basis, but once a year we dedicate a week to product safety and workplace safety and, you know, making sure people understand why it's so important. I think this, that kind of commitment over, you know, many years where we'll be having our sixth uh, product in workplace safety week uh, needs to continue. So it's, it's, it's my responsibility as the CEO of this company to make sure it doesn't fall off the agenda. But I think by setting um, goals for ourselves in the short, medium and long term. Uh, we can then hold ourselves accountable. And I expect the, the GM team to hold me accountable. Well, it's such an interesting idea of saying, look, these are painful scars that we have gone through. Your natural reaction is to say that was in the past. Let's keep moving forward. What you're saying is, no, we have to keep revisiting the painful times. That is the only way we actually make this change. I'm sure employees don't want it. They at some point must be like, yeah, we got it. Safety. Understand that was the past. That was the old. You know, that wasn't me. I, haven't, I wasn't even here during that time. How do you make sure that it continues to stay relevant? You know, I probably, a week doesn't go by where I don't get a letter from a customer sharing with me what their vehicle looked like if they after they were in some type of accident. Uh, many times thanking us, saying, I walked away from the vehicle and the pictures they show us. We share that across the company. So knowing that uh, we can do things and with our commitment to safety that we can save lives is, is the positive aspect where people say, you know, I want to do everything I can. Every year in our safety week for the last couple, we now have a customer uh, who tells us their personal story. And, um, you know, stories stay with you, as you well know, in, in your business. And that's what keeps people motivated and committed. So it's not always reflecting on the negative. It's focusing on the positive and showing the work we do and how important it is to people's lives. And that's why I think there's a lot of parallels to what we're talking about of how we're going to create a truly uh, inclusive environment. Really interesting. Mary, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, really appreciate you spending your time and coming back to This Is Working and for continuing to write and share your voice on LinkedIn. It's always great to hear what people are saying and how they're responding and what they're learning from the kind of path that you're blazing. So thanks for, thanks for doing it. And we will continue to follow uh, what you say and, and where you're taking GM. Well, thanks so much for the opportunity. Thanks. That was GM CEO, Mary Barra. I was struck by a few things from that interview. Number one is how Mary is constantly revisiting massively painful experiences from GM's past as a way to make the company do better. Who wants to reopen wounds all the time? Mary does. She thinks that is the way you become a better and tougher company. And B, how committed she is to audacious goals. Zero commute time, zero death from accidents, and now a push to be the world's most inclusive company. Those are really huge goals, and you're asking a lot from employees to say, this is the kind of company we are going to be. This is the bar I'm setting. Setting a bar is not enough. You need accountability. Mary talked a lot about accountability, about setting short, medium, and long-term goals as a means of making those changes. 
I would love to hear from you. What does accountability look like to you? How are you holding yourself accountable these days? And what does your goal setting look like? If you can share your new skills and interests with me over on LinkedIn using the hashtag, this is working, I would love it. I'll post an article about this interview on my profile and you can comment there as well. As always, to get more news and insights, you can follow our main LinkedIn page, which you can find by searching for LinkedIn News. Please take a moment and rate us on Apple Podcasts. It really helps listeners find the show. This is Working as a Production of LinkedIn. The podcast was produced by Sarah Storm and Madison Schaefer with help from Michaela Greer. Joe DeGiorgi mixed our show. Florencia Iriando is head of original video and audio. Dave Pond is our technical director. I'm Dan Roth, LinkedIn's editor-in-chief. Stay strong. See you next week.